What I'm doing is giving two talks combined into one, um, which makes it even longer, doesn't it? That is a topical talk and a biblical talk at the same time. The topical will be biblical, but the exegetical... Just, I'm going to expound 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 5 over the three talks, but at the same time I'm going to address three topics. Uh, what is the gospel? What is evangelism? Why evangelize? So each time it's a topic and a Bible passage. Not that I think these Bible passages are directly connected to the topic. It's not that Paul is writing chapter 3 on what is the gospel, chapter 4 on what is evangelism, but these three chapters are part of the biblical data that inform our minds on these three topics. So there's this merging of these two forms of teaching, topical teaching and biblical exposition in the same talk and if it doesn't work I've got a plane flight out of here back to the mainland and well that's life isn't it? <laughs> now, tonight we're looking at what is the gospel and 2 Corinthians 3. Thank you for reading it for us Carl. And as we start, we're going to start with the uh, question, what is the gospel? And under that, you'll put up the next part of it there, is what is a gospel and what is the gospel? Now, the word gospel, you see, comes from angel, really. Uh, an angel is a messenger, uh, someone with a message. It's an announcement, an important great news of conquest or victory or encouragement. It can be personal but it usually is political, uh, news of great joy. It's meant to be good news for the recipient, but of course sometimes it's bad news for the recipient. Uh, a great military victory is terrific if you're on the winning side. It's not such good news if you're on the losing side. But it's a, it's a message that has built into it the concept of a promise. In fact, the word promise in Greek is again built on the word angel, built on the idea of a message. Because this great news that has happened, this great thing that is being announced, gives promise for the future. The future is now going to be a lot better as a result of the message that is being sent out. So it's more than information. The very telling of the news changes the situation that you're in and brings a new order to life for you. Now, here is an example of a personal gospel. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we read now that Paul writing, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of the faith and love and report that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. We don't normally call it a gospel, but it is a gospel. The gospel is that the Christians in Thessalonica continued to believe, stood firm under persecution. For Paul, that news was a gospel. And that is the very word he uses here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. That is, any news that is good news, that's great news, that's important news, that changes the situation, that enables... For Paul could live now that he knew that the Thessalonians had survived under the persecution and continued their faith and continued to love Paul. 
he could go on. But most of the references in the New Testament are to much more public, big, political pronouncements of kings and of kingdoms, especially, of course, the kingdom of God. Let me ask you then. Here is a question which we can put up in the next slide. What does September 23rd mean to you? Anybody's birthday here, September 23rd? No, so it's not that. So what does September 23rd... Can anybody tell me what September 23rd means to you? Does it hold any significance for anybody here? Other than it's somewhere between the 22nd and 24th. No. Well, it was the birthday of the first emperor of Rome, Augustus Caesar. He lived from 63 BC to 14 AD and he ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD. Very long rule, 27 BC to 14 AD. And in his rule he brought unity to the whole empire. An empire that stretched all the way across to Britain. I mean, it was a big empire, but it all came under him. At the height of his reign, in around about 9 BC, the Greeks of Asia, which uh, Turkey in our language, proclaimed a gospel, as they themselves called it. This was a gospel. Three quotes from it, this proclamation of theirs. It is a day which we may justly count as equivalent to the beginning of everything, if not in itself and its own nature, at any rate, in the benefits it brings. I read on a little bit more that's not on the text. Inasmuch as it has restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune and has now given a new look to the universe at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction had not Caesar been born to the common blessings of all men. Whereas providence, which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving it to Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and, next quote, by sending in him, as it were, a saviour for us and those who come after us, to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. And whereas the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the worlds of the glad tidings, there's the word Greek, there's the word euangelion, there's the word gospel, the world of the gospel that have come to men through him. Paulus Fabius Maximus, the next one, the proconsul of the province, has devised a way of honouring Augustus hitherto unknown to the Greeks, which is the reckoning of the time for the course of human life should begin with his birth. You see what the Lord Jesus Christ does to Augustus, don't you? But you see, the gospel of Augustus is very much like the gospel of Jesus, isn't it? With the coming of Jesus is the beginning of the new order. In fact, so important is his birthday, we're going to date everything from here on in by his birthday. Because the whole world was falling to rack and ruin until he came. And then because he was the perfect of all humans... God has created. That's a gospel. That's, the, that's what a gospel is. That's the, the very word is used of this proclamation. But it's a gospel that does more. It's more than just a herald of a new era. 
It actually brings it about. The proclamation is itself the gospel, since the salvation it proclaims is, is here. Now, we still today have public gospels, don't we? Here is a picture, thank you, of a 41-gallon salute in Green Park, given just a few weeks ago. Here are two evangelists proclaiming the message at Buckingham Palace, and here is the message, if the next one comes up, Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cambridge was safe delivered of a son at 4.24pm today. Her Royal Highness and her child are both doing well. And then it's signed by four witnesses. And then, down in the Thames, there was a 61 cannon salute, just to let us all know. Now that is a gospel. A great event that is changing the course of the future of human nature, as best we can tell, has happened. Again, this one's a birth gospel, isn't it? But that little boy who was born will be your grandparents' monarch, your grandchildren's monarch, most likely. Well, is that that long? Or might actually, yeah, it's, it's that far away. It's about, he's got to, we've got to go through two others before we get to him, haven't we? But all other things being equal... One day he will rule over, well, England, not necessarily the Republic of Australia. <laughs> but you never know. He still could, couldn't he? And certainly over the Commonwealth of Nations, if it's still there. He's just a baby, just like any other baby, but he's actually something different at the same time. That's a gospel. But if that's what a gospel is, what is the gospel? Now, the word, the word, as a noun and as a verb, occurs all over the New Testament except in the writings of John. And in different contexts, different wording is used as the content of the Gospel. But there was a proclamation of a new age. The New Testament is about a new age, a new king. And this Gospel is called the Gospel of God. It's called the Gospel of Christ. Uh, I've come to, yes, as to what is the Gospel. Both... It's in the sense that it's the gospel about God and it's God's gospel. It's the gospel about Christ and it's Christ's gospel. It's not a human gospel. It's not a message made up by humans, but a message that comes to us from God and is about God. There's not two gospels or three gospels or four gospels. In fact, in that sense, the word gospel is misapplied to the books that we have the four gospels there aren't four gospels there's only one gospel and any other gospel is a false gospel because there's only one gospel the gospel of god is the gospel of christ and this gospel is powerful you know it in romans chapter one that the gospel is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes but it's powerful in that it creates faith in Romans 1 and Philippians 1. It brings salvation in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 15. It also brings judgment in Romans 2. It reveals God's righteousness in Romans 1. It brings the fulfilment of hope in Colossians 1. It intervenes in the life of men and creates churches. It can't be fettered by human chains in 2 Timothy 2. It produces new birth and new life in 1 Peter 1. It 
brings peace in Ephesians 2, drawing those who are far away from God towards God and uniting again the Jew and the Gentile in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. It brings salvation in Ephesians 1. It brings life and immortality to life in 1, 2 Timothy 1. Throughout the New Testament, this gospel is a living, active, dynamic thing. It's not just a, a set of words. It's something that changes people, changes life, changes society, changes the world because it's about the great change in people, the great change. It, its message is fulfilled in the effects of preaching its message. We see the power of the gospel in particular in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So let me remind you of Point number two, the context. Thanks, Sarah, if we get up the context here. And there are three points under the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I love it that you guys have all got chocolates and marshmallows to eat as we go, but I'm sorry that I can't do it and talk simultaneously. <laughs> and therefore, I've got to work out the temptation whether to give up talking and just eating or give up eating and just talking. But that's why they've brought my wife along with me to stop me eating. Okay, so... Hey, the troubled, you wonder what people think when they listen on the, on the, on the sea and the tapes later, don't you? What is it that they were doing and eating at this point? It's like when you tell a joke and you tell them to turn the tape off for a minute and then when it comes back on, everyone's laughing. Now, what was that joke that, never mind. Um, the troubled, what 2 Corinthians is about is a troubled relationship that was resolved with thanksgiving to God. You see it in Chapter 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took my leave, took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. The first chapter and a half of, of 2 Corinthians is about the terrible trouble and the struggle that Paul is having, especially with the church in Corinth. And... He's waiting for good news to come from Titus, but it hasn't come, and so he's terribly stressed. But then verse 14 sounds like a whole new world has started, because he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And you wonder what happens between verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13, he's down in the dumps and so stressed in anxiety he doesn't know what to do. Verse 14, he's singing the praises of God. Well, what happened is chapter 7, verse 5. Remember, you're listening to one side of a telephone call when you're reading the Paul's letter to the Corinth. They know what happened. Uh, they know what they're saying. We only know what Paul's saying. So it's like being in the train or the bus and, you know, you hear that telephone call that that person's talking and you wish you didn't have to. And you can piece together some information about the person they're talking to and what they're saying, but you only get one end of the conversation. That's how we read the epistles. Well, chapter 7, verse 5 gives it away. For even when we came into Macedonia, which is just the point made in chapter 2 there, 13, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. So the context is these troubled relationships he's had with the Corinthians, and now Titus has come bringing the good news. 
And in that context, he explains what's happening as the triumphal procession. In the ancient world, the conquering general would lead his troops through the streets as well as we would with a ticker tape parade after we've won some gold medals in the Olympics. I think it happened in 1970, uh, anyway. Um, and so we have this parade to say, here are the conquerors, here are the rulers. And the general would lead the captives as part of the booty as they travelled through each town on the way back to Rome. You, you didn't just go and conquer people. You stripped them of all their possessions. You took all their gold, all their silver. You took their finest clothes. You took their healthiest men and their leading rulers. You took their young women and you put them in a big procession behind you so as to show all the value of what you have conquered. And you would give some on the way out to other people as a distribution of gifts. It's something that Paul knew and well enough because he describes it in several passages of the scriptures or alludes to it in several passages such as this one. The, the, the procession displayed the might and the power and the success and the pomp and the splendour of the general but it also was terrible humiliation and defeat. Can you imagine? You used to be a general in this army. You used to be a courtier at the court of the king. And now you're walking along, stripped naked or just bearing the least of clothes. As you walk now in chains behind this Roman general as he heads back to Rome. The humiliation of the defeat. A strong political point is being made. Anybody who wants to revolt against Rome... One day we'll walk in this procession behind. Beware. And so with music and banners and the triumphal procession would proceed with the captives, the slaves of the victor, strewing out incense as they followed along. This is the, the striking analogy that Paul is using to explain his life. God is leading him as a new slave of Christ in the Christian procession. See, God is leading his people in victory. The battle's won by God with Christ's death and resurrection. He's proclaiming now to the world by this procession the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. We're like slaves wafting out the incense of the victory of Christ as the news of the conquest spreads across the world in us and in our message. And we don't look all that impressive. We're part of the victor's trophies. But we're sending out the message of the great king, the gospel of Christ. And so verse 12, where the aroma, he puts it, verse 12 doesn't sound right to me. Um, pick it up in verse uh, 15. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things. You see, the procession was like that. If you were one of the enemies of Rome, seeing your fellow countrymen, your fellow believers in captivity as slaves was the stench of death. But if you were one of the Roman supporters, seeing those people who used to oppress you now held in captivity, why, that was the sweet smell of life, of your future. Well, we are that. We are walking along as a stench to the enemies of God and as the sweet smell of success to the friends of God. And so, the 
the content of our passage tonight in chapter 3 is the next part, Sarah, of our outline, point 3, A to F as it goes. Because the question comes, you see, at the end of verse 15, 16, who is, end of 16, who is sufficient for these things? Who's competent for such a task as going about with the gospel, bringing life and bringing death wherever we go? And the answer we expect in all Christian humility is to say, well, gee, I'm not competent. I couldn't do it. Nearly every person I've ever talked to about evangelism all things like they can't do it. It's the answer you'd expect Paul to give. It's the answer we would expect to give ourselves. But Paul says, I am competent for this task. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. For God is at work in us and he has made us competent. You pick it up verse the end of verse 5. Our sufficiency is from God. Verse 6, chapter 3, 6. Who has made us competent or sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life. He's made us competent, sufficient to be the ministers of this new covenant, this new testament. And here it is contrasted with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Testament's the Latin word. Covenant is the, well, it's not an English word either, but it means exactly the same thing. And the contrast is very stark between the two. A profound contrast. Because, as we've just read in verse 6, the Spirit, the New Covenant, gives life, as the letter, the Old Law, gives death. It kills. I mean, look at the contrast in verse 3. It's not written with ink, but with a spirit. Not on tablets of stone, but on the tablet of the human heart. I mean, look at the contrast down in verses 7 and 8. A contrast of glory. The letters on stone came with glory, but the ministry of the Spirit comes with much more glory. On verse 9, because Moses' ministry is a ministry of condemnation, but Jesus' ministry is a ministry of righteousness. And in verses 10 and 11, if you look down there, you'll see Moses' ministry is transitory. It's overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus, while Jesus' ministry is permanent. And God has made us sufficient, not for the ministry of the old covenant, extraordinary as that is, but the ministry of the new covenant, which is even more extraordinary. I mean, they're both glorious, but the new covenant is the more glorious covenant. In fact, so much more glorious that the old glory of the old covenant cannot compete with it and has come to an end. The glory of Jesus doesn't compare to the glory of Moses. It's contrasted to the glory of Moses for Jesus so far outshines Moses. I like the uh, illustration of the moon and the sun in this regard. When there is no moon, the night is very, very dark. But on a full moon night, the moon shines so brightly you can see where you're going, you can even on a full moon read your paper. Yet its light is only ever the reflected light of the sun. The moon does not have any light in and of itself. And when the sun comes out in all its brightness, why the moon and its light recedes so that you, you can't seem to see it at all. In fact, some days, if you look around in the sky, you'll see the moon is up there. But you have to go looking for it because it has such little significance. 
once the sun has come. So the covenant of Moses was as brilliant as a full moon on a dark night. It lights up the night so that it's no longer dark. But once the sun comes, the law of Moses, the law of Moses when we lived in the darkness of the light of the night, was the one light that we had. Before the Lord Jesus came, before the Saviour of the world arrived, Moses was the brightest light humanity had, showing us God and how to live God's ways and showing his plans. But once the sun had come, the sunshine of the Son of the Lord so overwhelmed the moon and its light that you can hardly see it. However, if you fail to see how glorious Moses is, you may never realise how much more glorious Jesus is. See, remember the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus appears, transfigured in all glory, and beside him are Moses and Elijah? They were the two greatest Old Testament prophets, and they were in glory. But when the voice of heaven comes, God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In the presence of the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, it's Jesus that you are to listen to. But there's even more. For now we have Jesus' letters by his spirit. He is writing letters in the world. Some people think Jesus never wrote anything, but that's because they don't understand. Jesus is now writing, has been for 2,000 years. They're not the normal letters of papers and envelopes, or nor the electronic letters in your computers, nor an SMS on your telephone. But that, why do we keep calling them telephones, by the way? They're really handheld computers, aren't they? Just with the telephone capacity. Um, but I suppose handheld telephone. Anyway, but they're not just SMSs that Jesus is sending. They are spiritual letters of changed hearts of hearts moved to obey God and to share his glory. See, Moses' message was for the people, but was hidden from them. He put a veil over his face because of their fear, and they've put a veil over their hearts, not wanting to hear what he has to say. But Jesus writes his letters on our hearts, opening our hearts and minds to hear, to receive, to respond, and to obey joyfully. The gospel is not an external imposition of rules and regulations, but an internal transformation of the person that makes a radical difference. The difference the spirit of Jesus makes is not putting new clothes on the outside of a person, but putting a new person inside the clothes. Thus we lived with unveiled freedom. For while the Jews still read Moses, they still read him with a veil over their face so as to make sure they don't hear the message. Only Moses, when he turned from the people and went into the Holy of Holies, only went into the sanctuary, only when he went in did he take the veil off to hear what God's message was. And as he heard God's message, so he was transformed, which is what so terrified the rest of the people. But now, when anybody turns to the Lord Jesus Christ and finds in his death forgiveness of our sins and in his resurrection new life, the veil is removed. 
The law of God no longer condemns us. The law of God is no longer something forbidding and fearful. The law of God no longer brings death, but it is as the psalmist knew, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, more to be desired than gold, sweeter than the honey, is the law of God to those who with unveiled face are turning to the Lord. For when we turn to the Lord, we turn to the Lord Jesus, who by his Spirit rules the world today. The Lord is the Spirit, and it is the Spirit of the Lord who gives us this freedom. Freedom from death, freedom from condemnation, freedom from live, freedom of righteousness, freedom from fear, the fear of God and his word. The people of Israel were so afraid of God, they didn't want to hear what he had to say. Freedom we have now to listen. For we know God is our Father and are bold and confident to come into his presence and listen with joy to what he has to say. There is a massive transformation that takes place in the new covenant that was hardly there in the old. We have the freedom to be changed and changing. For as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see him in his glory, the word of God full of grace and truth, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God in all power and authority to rule over all nations for all time, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom of priests through his God and to his Father. As we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see him in his glory, and we are being changed. Transformed is the word is metamorphosed. We are being changed from one degree of glory to another, from the grub to the butterfly, if you like. But our transformation is one internally to be changed into his image, to become more and more like Jesus himself in all his glory. And this change is a gradual one. It doesn't finish in this lifetime. Only when Jesus returns will we be fully transformed into his likeness of his glorious body. But for now, we are being changed. We are changing one bit to another, from one degree of glory to another. Slowly, steadily, the alteration is there to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Becoming a Christian and continuing as a Christian is a transforming process. And as individuals are transformed, so families are transformed. And as individuals and families are transformed, so society is transformed and the world is transformed. This is the power of God at work in the world today. At a place where governments would love to be able to change people, to transform. All governments can do is make rules and regulations to limit people. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ changes people. But doesn't just change them out there, changes me in here. Has God by his Spirit, but the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit, 
writes his law on my heart and moves me to be obedient to it. So the Spirit is at work within us, bringing about the change. Gradually his fruit is seen in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, it might sound a very boring list, but if you had a choice of fat mates, wouldn't you like them to be like this? <laughs> These are the people you could live with. This is the society that wouldn't need a massive big tax law, let alone tax lawyers. Totally unnecessary if people were transformed. Sorry, those who are tax lawyers, but we've got another career in mind for you. Um, <laughs> totally transformed people do not need all the rules and regulations of our world and our government. As we become more and more like Jesus. And therefore, says Paul in chapter 4, we, we don't lose heart. Everything's backed against us. More of this tomorrow as we look at chapter 4. Everything is backed against us, but we don't lose heart. Well, our gospel may be veiled to those who are unbelievers, but we don't lose heart. We, we, we don't fiddle with the law. We don't have to change the gospel. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, chapter 4, verse 1, we don't lose heart. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We have the power of God to change lives. Why would we fiddle with the message? Why would we change the message? Why would we use some other method? Why would we try and take over the government and change people that way? We have in the gospel the transforming power of God at work in us and through us in the lives of other people. So what is the gospel? Well, look down in chapter 4 there, end of verse 4 where it talks about the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel that we preach, that we live by, that we're saved by? What, what is the gospel? Why? It's the light of the glory of Christ, who is the very image of God. The gospel is not ourselves, it's Jesus. Well, what about ourselves? Well, we are slaves. We're slaves of the people to whom we preach, and we're slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. More of that tomorrow night. But what happens is we bring the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus. And as people turn to the Lord, so they are transformed by this gospel message. My friends, we've got an exciting weekend ahead of us because we've got an exciting life. There's hardly anything much more exciting than changing the world and there's only one thing that really does it in this world. The God who said, let there be light is the God who, through the gospel, brings light to people. And we're caught up in that activity of proclaiming this message that changes people.
It is a fantastic thing. It's a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death and for his resurrection and for the outpouring of his spirit into our lives to bring us new birth. We thank and praise you, Father, that we do not believe and do not preach a dead letter, but the living word of God, your very gospel message, your proclamation to the world of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that you use us to be, to be like the fragrance of life to those who are being saved and the stench of death to those who are perishing because we are those who bring the proclamation of Jesus' victory by his death and resurrection. So help us this weekend, Father, as we think about your gospel. And as we work on it, looking through your scriptures and talking with each other, that we may ever be clear on the means of salvation that you have given to us and ever clear on the message that you would have us to proclaim to our needy world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.